Chapter 49. We Had a Baby Although I was back in school, I was just taking odd courses, mostly electives, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, so I had an inordinate amount of time on my hands to be around Tina and support her through the seemingly interminable final weeks of pregnancy. On February 28, 2000, we got up at 5.30 a.m., put Tina's packed bags into the car, said goodbye to Katie, and headed off to the hospital for a scheduled C-section due to the baby lying in a transverse position. Other than the epidural, Tina didn't get any real pain drugs because she couldn't feel anything below the waist anyway. She just kept saying, It feels so weird, over and over and over again. It was a surreal feeling to hear that first cry and to hear the doctor say, It's a girl! Coming from a family of almost all boys and being an uber-masculine, aggressive-type guy, the thought had never even occurred to me, not even once, that I would have a daughter. Granted, growing up, I probably never thought for more than a minute combined about having children, though I did spend weeks' worth of hours thinking about who I might have children with. Despite never giving it any thought, apparently I had built up an unconscious expectation of having a son, because when the doctor excitedly announced that I had a daughter... I paused to see if he had made a mistake. He hadn't, and I stood up and gazed upon my progeny for the first time in the flesh. She was big and pink and had blood all over her head and was screaming in a very healthy way. One of the great things about a C-section delivery is that the baby's head doesn't get misshapen by getting squeezed through the birth canal. She looked perfect. She was big, too, as we had suspected, weighing in at 9 pounds 4 ounces. It turns out that the blood on her head was in fact her own, because the surgeon, in his haste, had nicked her scalp with his scalpel. This wasn't discovered until she had been fully cleaned off. I came floating out of the operating room while they were sewing Tina up, and met members of both of our families in the hallway to deliver the news. We had decided ahead of time what her name would be, so everyone was excited to meet Amanda Caroline. Tina says that when she first heard Amanda's cry, she thought, That's my baby. She's a real person. For nine months, Amanda had been theoretical only and finally the vision had come to life. It was one of the most exciting moments of my entire life, but I also felt the weight almost immediately as it had occurred to me some weeks before that this little human would only ever know me as Dad, not as Ted. She wouldn't know the punk-rockin', greasy-haired, skateboarding, irreverent guy. She would know me as her protector and the person who was supposed to have all the answers. I had expressed the angst of this realization a week before in the lyrics of a song I wrote called One Week Left. Doesn't seem too long ago. We decided to bring you home. We thought maybe having a baby would be too much, but we have grown. People tell me I can't force you in the direction I want you to go. I hope I can show and teach you so that you will go on your own. You can see me. You can hear me. Whatever I say, you'll believe. I hope I can say all the right things so you'll always be with me. One week left, one week to wait. Will I be good? Will I be great enough for you? Will I be half as good as my dad? Will I give you the life I had? I have to say that I feel like this song was a gift from God. It so perfectly sums up my feelings toward being a parent. And as my firstborn, the experimental child, as her younger siblings jokingly refer to her, turned 18 and graduated from high school, I couldn't even sing two lines without emotion choking out any hope I had of singing. But I love crying my way through the song. This is one of the things that having a daughter has done for me. Speaking of crying, I remember the first night that Amanda came home with us. 
Because Tina had had a C-section, she wasn't discharged from the hospital for three days. I slept at home on those nights, since there was obviously not much I could contribute in the way of breastfeeding. The first night Amanda was home with us, I fully intended to play my part as the dutiful father and husband, and each time she awoke crying during the night, I would get up along with Tina to lend moral and emotional support. It only took three times of Amanda waking up crying for me to feel hopeless, desperately trapped, and exhausted. She was waking up every two hours, and despite my great feats of sleep deprivation as a teenager, this was a different matter entirely. I remember saying to Tina, I can't do this. I can't live like this. I need to get my sleep in more than two-hour chunks. Needless to say, I survived. Amanda was not an easy baby. However, because she was our first, we had no one to compare her to, and we didn't know that. She didn't really sleep through the night until she was probably two or three years old. Because the townhouse we were living in was old, it was afflicted with squeaky floors that made an already difficult situation almost impossible. If we could miraculously get Amanda to go to sleep, we had to delicately and slowly tiptoe across the squeaky minefield of her bedroom floor, ever so carefully place her down on the crib mattress, and if that didn't wake her up, make the equally slow and treacherous journey back across the room to slowly close the door behind us. Of course, it almost never worked that smoothly. It's funny as parents how we feel so entitled to things like sleep, time to ourselves, and not having to explain ourselves. It's straight up delusional. Why would we expect a baby to sleep through the night in a crib in a separate room from us when she'd spent the last nine months literally inside her mother's body? Granted, some babies do, but most don't, and when they don't, the parents often feel like they're failing, and if they don't point the blame at themselves, they can actively resent the child. Now that my kids are older, it's easier to recognize the ridiculousness of that position. But when you're a rookie parent, you just don't know any better. Being a parent, especially of a newborn, requires so many of the traits and skills that an ADHD person lacks. It requires selflessness, patience, follow-through, organization, motivation, self-awareness, self-care, and even a good working memory. We always laughed, inwardly, at my dad when he was getting after one of us and had to cycle through all seven of our names before he got to the right one. But of course, I end up doing the same thing now. My kids don't laugh inwardly, though, so maybe I'm less intimidating. Chapter 50. Overeating, but not anonymous. When Tina was pregnant with Amanda, she gained a serious amount of weight. I never put any pressure on her to watch her weight when she was pregnant because I really didn't care about it and because I'm not a jerk or an idiot. I wanted a big, fat baby anyway. There's always been a preoccupation with big things in my family. I'm sure it comes from my dad, but he was always impressed by tall people, strong people, big trucks, big trees, but not so much by my big mouth. So, when it came time for me to procreate, of course I wanted the baby to be big. It's not like I was feeding Tina a diet of protein shakes and amino acids, but I could recognize that being pregnant is hard enough without having to worry about what you look like. Of course, to help Tina transition to this newer, bigger version of herself, I chipped in where I could and gained 35 pounds myself. My weight up to that point had fluctuated wildly following my graduation, but it was mostly intentional. I was a lean 185 pounds when I left on my mission, but the missionary training center is known for feeding the missionaries a bit too well, so it was no surprise that I gained about 10 pounds in the nine weeks that I was there. How could I not? There were long lines in the cafeteria, so they put freezers full of ice cream sandwiches halfway down the line just to help us pass the time. This was the case for all meals except breakfast, which means I had at least two ice cream sandwiches every day. 
I also discovered a love of peanut M&Ms and kept track of how many bags I had eaten over my time there. The total ended up being somewhere in the 80s, which is pretty impressive given that I was only there for 65 days. On my mission, we were riding terrible bikes and doing a lot of walking and sweating, so I could pretty much eat whatever I wanted without having to worry about the impact on my waistline. When I got transferred to Tacoma, however, and discovered the joy of a bench press in my apartment, I correctly reasoned that in order to put on enough muscle to achieve my goal of bench pressing 315 pounds, I would need to eat a lot more protein. And in order to have the energy to work out that hard, I would need to eat a lot more carbs. However, on my limited missionary budget, I was not able to buy fancy supplements and shakes, so I just ate everything in sight and as much of it as I could find. This led to me getting my weight up to 230 pounds again. I ended up achieving my goal, as I mentioned, but when the weights were taken away after someone in the mission damaged their apartment by dropping weights on the floor, I was just left as a fat guy. I split my pants and broke chairs by sitting on them and had to buy new clothes at the Goodwill store because I couldn't fit into anything I owned anymore. I decided at one point that I was not going to go home looking like that, so I started to change my ways. I stopped eating desserts and took smaller portions. We were still riding around on bikes, and by the end of my mission, I was back down to 200 pounds. When I got married, I was a solid 195. I started powerlifting again shortly after that and gained my 35 pounds back. Once again, I was incredibly strong, but I had a face that looked a bit like it was carved out of a marshmallow, so I decided that something needed to change. I stopped eating like crazy and lost the weight again. Then when Tina got pregnant, I gained 35 sympathy pounds. I've seen this funny meme going around on social media that says, I wish I was as fat as I was the first time I thought I was fat. I laugh, but it's so true. When I was 18 years old and working at the furniture warehouse, I was horrified that my waist had grown to a number that was a good 8 inches smaller than it currently is at the time that I write this. Most people wouldn't equate ADHD and obesity problems, but if you think about it, the requirements of maintaining proper weight are skills like impulse control, delayed gratification, goal setting, and follow-through, emotion regulation, and self-awareness. These are not my areas of strength. Anyway, after Amanda was born, Tina started working on shedding the baby weight, and I followed her in the process. We didn't do anything dramatic or trendy, we just ate healthier and exercised. For some unknown reason, I decided to try running on the treadmill at the gym. That might not seem weird since I had such a sports-involved youth and still played basketball on a regular basis, but that was purposeful running. I was running after something or away from something. Running just to run was the thing I hated the most. I'm not built for it. I'm full of fast-twitch muscle fibers, built to lift stuff and smash stuff, not glide along like a gazelle. When I was in grade 12, I had a chance to get an A in my PE class. All I needed to do was get a decent time in the 2400 meter run. Instead, I decided to walk the whole thing and took the B. So, I'm not sure what I was thinking the first time I got on a treadmill and decided to see how far I could run in an hour. Actually, I think I might have some idea. My brain is attracted to extremes. Even though moderation is much more sustainable in almost all activities in life, moderation cannot sustain my attention and dedication because the reward is not as immediate or noticeable. I'm also attracted to the kinds of feats that make people say, you did what? It's rooted in my need for attention, I guess. No one is impressed when the fat guy does 15 minutes on the treadmill. They might say, good for you, or you gotta start somewhere. But I wanted them to say, you're the most impressive guy I've ever seen in my life. You did a thing that I didn't think anyone could do, least of all you. I ran 8.4 kilometers that first time. I was shocked. In high school, I couldn't even do a quarter of that without wanting to die. 
The next week I went back and ran 9.4 kilometers in the same amount of time and I was hooked. It was extreme, I saw immediate results, and I could brag about it. So with eating better and falling in love with running, the weight started to drop off. Approximately six months after Amanda was born, I found myself once again tipping the scales at 200 pounds. Probably the most intoxicating thing about losing weight is the feeling of control that you have over yourself. The ability to say no to things that you felt helpless about previously is a great way to balance feelings of powerlessness elsewhere in your life. You know who else says that? People with anorexia. It was this realization that I had while losing weight that allowed me to see eating disorders as having only a tenuous relationship with body image and a much stronger link to trauma and powerlessness. Chapter 51. Not so fast, genius. That semester at Kwantlen College, I was taking some more filler courses, building up elective credits and not really knowing what I wanted to do in psychology. The thought came to me one day that I love sports and I love psychology, and I wondered if there was any way to combine the two into a career. So I went to the internet, this was pre-Google, searched the term sports psychology, and was overjoyed to find that this was a growing field that I could actually be a part of. I immediately decided that this was going to be my future. However, in the meantime, I still needed to take geography, computer science, and Spanish to erase the F that I received when I stopped going to class. Spanish came easily to me, and the computer science class was really simple, but taught me the basics of Microsoft Word and Excel, which skill set would be incredibly handy throughout my education and beyond. I found that geography was also pretty easy, and I really loved the prof, who was a very friendly older guy from Nigeria, who had a heavy accent and a twinkle in his eye. Because I was doing well in my classes, I was able to reassume the role that I had in elementary school of the kid that the teacher liked. It was a great feeling. I got two A pluses and an A, a semester that most people would be ecstatic with, but I ended up with a nasty taste in my mouth due to my ADHD rearing its ugly head again. I was going into my geography final with 100% in the class. That's not a typo. I had not missed an answer on any test or assignment the entire semester. That's the kind of grade that you would think would sit in direct counter-evidence to my inner feelings of stupidity and inadequacy, but in fact, it kind of worked in reverse. The grade was so extremely different from my high school experience that I figured there must be something wrong with the class, the school, the professor, or anything else that might explain how I could be doing so well in my education. One of the brain's little cognitive shortcuts is called the confirmation bias, which I referred to back at the very beginning of this book, so you probably don't remember what it is. It's the tendency to pay attention to and remember things that confirm what we already think and to screen out everything else. When we can't screen it out, like having 100% in a class, the brain is very adept at twisting or reframing the information so that it still fits into the pre-existing bias. For my brain, it was easy to argue that this was just a small school, that the prof liked me, or that I was graded relative to my classmates who were mostly a few years younger than I was. In any event, I had 100% heading into the final exam, and by the time it was over, I knew that I had aced it. I mean, really aced it. There wasn't one answer that I didn't know. Not only that, but I did the whole thing in about a third of the allotted time. I don't remember one single thing that I learned in that class, but I remember that during the final, this girl who was sitting behind me opened a crinkly bag of chips and would occasionally take one out of the bag and slowly crunch away on it. Because the room was so quiet and my ADHD senses were so tuned into my irrelevant surroundings, it sounded like she was tap dancing on the desk. I remember that they were sun chips because I kept turning around to glare at her. I mean, it was like a comedy sketch. She wasn't just eating chips. 
She was slowly crunching away at them, one single chip at a time, dragging out the process for as long as possible. It's like she was eating them at me. Wait, do most people eat chips one at a time, or do most people shove them into their mouths by the handful, like I do? I'm going to ask that question on my Facebook page right now. Anyway, I somehow survived her chewing assault and strutted up to the front of the class to drop my exam booklet into the prof's desk. I enjoyed the idea of my classmates looking at me in awe as they continued to struggle with the test and sauntered out of the classroom, noticing on my way that my crunchy, crinkly friend actually had two bags of chips with one remaining unopened in the event that she was in there for the long haul. I almost took the bag with me, but my impulse control worked that time, and I left. A week or so later, I checked my grades online and was shocked to see that I had finished with an A in my geography class instead of the A+, that I was absolutely certain I would see. I quickly went to my backpack to grab my geography binder to get the syllabus out to get the prof's contact information so I could email him and ask what had happened. As I opened the binder, I saw the answer to my question. It was the multiple choice section of the exam. The exam had been divided into two sections, contained in two separate booklets, while we were writing it the multiple choice section, and the written section. When I had strutted up to his desk to drop off my finished exam, I had mistakenly only taken the written booklet with me. When I came back to my desk, perhaps distracted by the crunching sound echoing my ears, but more likely distracted by my own ego, I had mistakenly put the other booklet into my bag and left. As such, I only got 50% on the final exam. Unlike my French professor who had taken mercy on my scattered mind during my first semester, my kindly Nigerian friend gave me no such credit and slashed my mark down without prejudice. These are the kinds of experiences that lead a person to go into a class with 100% and still feel like an idiot and a fraud. Of course, now I know that the two things are completely unrelated, but at the time I didn't, and it just fueled my self-image of the almost champ. Chapter 52. Give me an inch. After my third successful semester of university, I got a better job. My dad was working for the provincial power company, and they were having a lot of problems with illegal marijuana grow-ups stealing power. During a meeting with a security consultant, my dad mentioned that I spoke Vietnamese, as many of these thieves were Vietnamese. The consultant, a former member of the RCMP, couldn't believe his ears and gave my dad the number of someone who would really want to speak to me. My dad passed the number along to me of a special RCMP unit that performed various forms of surveillance. It turned out that they were working on a Vietnamese file at the time and were in sore need of interpreters. I guess it was uncommon to find a white person who could speak Vietnamese, but it was also important that I be able to pass the high-level security clearance check that the RCMP conducts on employees who have that level of access to information. I mean, this is the kind of security check where they talk to everyone who's been your neighbor in the last 10 years, as well as all previous employers and immediate and extended family, and then ask you really probing personal questions to find out if you're a bad guy or not. To have a Vietnamese speaker who was also fluent in English and could pass the security check, they thought they had struck gold with me. I showed up for the interview and was told that I would need to complete a typing test. Nobody had told me about a typing test. This was back in the late 90s, and writing papers on computers was still a relatively new thing to me. I was strictly a two-finger typer. They left me in a room with two paragraphs displayed on the upper part of a computer screen. All I had to do was type out the two paragraphs as many times as I could in three minutes. Seems simple enough. After they came back to see my results, I was not surprised, but still embarrassed, that I had not even typed out one of the paragraphs one time. I figured I had just blown my chance at a sweet job and was prepared to be given a gracious thank you for showing up 
when they essentially told me when my first shift would be. I was shocked. It turns out that if you have one skill strong enough, it can make up for the ones you lack. I suppose that this is true in many areas of life, especially as someone with ADHD. For example, my creativity could often make up for my lack of attention to detail. My ability to hyper-focus under pressure would make up for my lack of organization beforehand. The fun, generous, and thoughtful parts of me would make up for the attention-seeking, jealous, and selfish parts of myself. I think it's really important that we always see ourselves and others in a balanced way as dynamic, fluid, hybrid people who, while prone to being trapped in the moment and thus seeing ourselves as only one way or the other, are actually kaleidoscopes. Anyway, I showed up for my first shift and began listening to other people's lives on the phone. Obviously, I can't tell you anything about how it works or what I heard or saw, but let it suffice to say that the job of voyeur was perfectly suited to my ADHD brain. I was a people-watching professional long before that job or my current career as a therapist. Whether it was staring at people in a restaurant, the classroom, at church, or, my personal favorite, at the mall, I loved sitting and watching people and wondering about their lives. I know that I'm not alone in this tendency, but landing this job in the summer after my third semester was a blessing in so many ways. I only worked on the Vietnamese file for a few weeks before they closed it down, but they transferred me over to a different file that was just English-speaking. What a break I caught. If I hadn't had the Vietnamese, they wouldn't have looked at me twice for a hire. But it turned out that was only the key that unlocked the door. The job paid decently well, and I had good benefits, holidays, sick days, and pretty decent co-workers from very diverse backgrounds. My two main partners in crime, prevention, were Chisen and Sean. Chisen was this really smart Japanese woman who was saving money to finish her university degree, and Sean was a university football player who could have been my own brother for how alike we were. We were all pretty close in age and left fairly unsupervised to do our jobs. As you might predict, Chisen was the most mature of the bunch and took on the role of fun mom, while Sean and I were the unruly teenagers who made mom roll her eyes and shake her head on a regular basis. It was a job that had periods of both intense excitement and mind-numbing boredom. Our office was located in the RCMP headquarters in Vancouver, so across the complex there were gyms where we could work out or shoot hoops. When it was time for me to take my break or my lunch, I would head over and hit the treadmill, continuing my weight loss journey. It was a long commute to Vancouver, but I found a way around it by leaving extremely early in the morning. That way I could beat the traffic on the way in and out. We didn't have a super specific shift time as long as there was always coverage on the phones, so I would often arrive at work before 6am and not have to do any actual work until closer to 8am. Eventually my supervisors realized what was happening and told me I couldn't come in that early, so it was back to the traffic. The highways and roads around Vancouver are terrible, for the record. Like, world-leading terrible. I could drive the 60 kilometers from my house in Abbotsford to the freeway exit on the edge of Vancouver in about 40 minutes, and then it would take me another 40 minutes to go the last 10 kilometers. This is the kind of math that leads people to commit acts of violence. Traffic is the bane of my ADHD existence. Being able to see your destination, but also being prevented from reaching it for no discernible reason is among the most frustrating experiences on earth. Well, in my life anyway. I'm sure seeing your much-needed food relief diverted by corrupt government leaders while you and your family starve in temporary cardboard housing is much more frustrating than bad traffic, but I don't live in that place. I live in the place where it takes 40 minutes to drive 10 kilometers. In a way, this issue is very representative of the internal traffic in the ADHD brain. Often, you know where you want to go, and even how to get there, but something just keeps getting in the way. 
The time slips by, and you end up scrambling at the end without any explanation for what was causing the delay in the first place. I was reading recently about different executive function problems that can occur with ADHD and autism, and I came across one that explains so much. It's called initiation, and it's the step between intending to do something and actually doing something. For most people, this process seems to have only two steps. You want to do something, so you do it. In actual fact, though, it's a three-step process. You intend to do something, you start to do the thing, and then you do the thing. For people whose brains struggle with that middle step, there ends up being a mental and emotional traffic jam that is as inexplicable to the actor as it is to the audience. Anyway, I remember this one time when it took three hours to get home from work. It was a smoking hot day, my car had no air conditioning, and it was a standard stick shift, meaning I just about wore the clutch out that day during the stop and go, but also meaning that I could never really just zone out because I had to stay mentally engaged enough not to stall my car. At about the halfway mark, I heard a commotion to my right and looked over to see another guy who was in my position, but who was not handling it as well as I was. He was losing his mind. I kind of expected him to pull a Michael Douglas move like in the movie Falling Down where this guy has just had enough and goes on a violent crime spree. That guy was screaming, cursing, and attempting to beat his steering wheel to death with his bare hands. He had lost any sense of caring about how this might be perceived by his fellow sufferers and had completely given over to the dark side. While I had a little chuckle at his expense, I could also completely relate. Since that day, I'm proud to say I've had a few of those moments of my own, but knowing what I know about the importance of expressing emotion, not just feeling it, I see it as a positive thing. Of course, this setup was a bit too good to be true, and since I epitomized the old saying about giving someone an inch and they will take a mile, I pushed my luck until I lost the trust of my supervisors. Because of course, it wasn't really okay, even if it wasn't technically within the rules, for me to get to work two hours before there was any action. It basically meant that I got paid to do nothing for two hours. And while that wasn't my intention, that was the reality. So as I mentioned, they asked me to come in a bit later. Also, I had the bright idea of combining my breaks and lunch and taking an extended lunch break over at the gym, which didn't really cause too many problems until I convinced Sean and even Chi Sen occasionally to join me. Anyway, at a certain point in the file, the active investigation was closed and our duties changed to transcription of selected pieces of evidence. This meant that we didn't need to cover live calls and thus we had much more flexibility in our workload. Basically, as long as we got everything done that we needed to do, we were left unsupervised. Technically. However, because every once in a while, all three of us ended up over at the gymnasium for a free throw contest, we increased the chances of an actual supervisor coming to our workroom and finding it empty during the middle of a shift. Which happened. Also, it happened that they stopped by one other time when it was just me that was gone. This did not look good, and it was my second strike. The supervisor was not impressed, but because I hadn't technically, gotta love that word, it's an annoying rule breaker's bread and butter, broken any rules, they could only be annoyed with me. Which they were. It kind of reminded me of a time in grade three where I made an assumption that landed me in some hot water. Chapter 53. Jelly Tots for Everyone. My grade three teacher was Mrs. Dunn. I don't know much about her other than that she had long, fake nails that were always brightly colored. She would often wear colorful hoop earrings and had a strong 80s game going, style-wise. She could be really nasty to us kids, because why not be a teacher and then be mad at kids for living, almost as if she was surprised at how much we didn't know. So many adults are like that, I find, when it comes to the frustrating things that kids do. 
We bark at them and ask incredulous questions like, why would you do that? Instead of remembering that they don't know anything and it's our job to teach them, and that same question, delivered with a tone of curiosity instead of condemnation, would actually go a long way in helping us understand the way they think and thus put us in a better position to help them learn. I realized this when my kids were young, and I put up signs that said, teachers, not taskmasters, all over our house. But they eventually just faded into the background and became visual white noise. The thought has never left me, though, even if I can't always practice what I preach and know to be true. That was a long sentence. You might need to read it again. Anyway, when I was in grade three, the boys in my class all became obsessed with eating kippers, which are like sardines, but they aren't actually sardines. I don't know the difference, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that they are gross. Salted fish with the skin on, served in a gooey juice from a tin can. They cost a dollar for a can over at Piper's Corner Store, which was just across the street from the elementary school. At recess and lunch, kids who had a few cents would head across the street and pick out some penny candy or some potato chips for 50 cents. During the 80s, it was so awesome that Hostess potato chips included little stickers of WWF wrestlers in the bags, and I ate many bags of pizza-flavored chips in hopes of completing my collection, which all ended up stuck to my desk at school. Pizza-flavored chips don't taste like pizza. Who decided that that's what pizza-flavored things should taste like? Anyway, kippers. Mrs. Dunn always seemed like she didn't belong in the redneck crowd of Salmo, and I'm pretty sure she didn't actually live around there. So you can imagine her delight when the boys in her class all started to ingest such a large quantity of stinky fish snacks that the room began to smell like stinky fish. Finally, one day she'd had enough and told the class that kippers were no longer going to be allowed unless the boys who brought them also brought their toothbrushes to school to get rid of the smell. I imagine that was an issue that they didn't cover in her professional development program during university. But there she was, delivering the edict to us with all of the dignity that she could muster. As cold and harsh as Mrs. Dunn could be, she had a strange habit of giving out little candies called jelly tots for a job well done, either academically or behaviorally. Occasionally, I managed to land a jelly tot, but the most memorable prizes were a half tot, because she would literally put the tot down on my desk and then cut it in half with one of her long fingernails, which is gross. But at the time, I just knew that I was getting some sugar, and that's all that mattered. An even greater honor than getting a jelly tot was being trusted to be the kid who got to run across the street to Piper's during school hours to buy a new package for Mrs. Dunn. Every time, the kid who was selected for this task was told to keep the change and buy a little something for themselves. It was really a double prize. You got to leave class, you got to be important, also you got a treat. So that's a triple prize, even better. One day, I'm not sure how, but I won the lottery and was given a dollar to run across the street to Piper's and buy the next bag of jelly tots. I did so and used the leftover money to buy myself something, which I ate on the way back to class, of course. I proudly came back into the classroom, walked over to Mrs. Dunn's desk, and handed her the package of jelly tots. She thanked me, and then when I turned to walk back to my seat, she shocked me by asking, where's the rest of the money? I stopped in my tracks and stammered out, I spent it on something else. Her eyes narrowed as she contemplated the best way to skin me alive. Why would you do that? She hissed, and not in the curious way that I was suggesting before. Um, because you always tell the kid to keep the change, I answered. Did I tell you to keep the change? She asked, as if cross-examining a serial killer on the witness stand. No, I had to admit. But you always tell the kid to keep the change, so I assumed that you would be okay with it. But I didn't tell you to keep the change, and you just assumed that, didn't you? 
How am I supposed to trust you now? Um, I don't know. You always tell the kid to keep the change. Well, I guess I won't be asking you to do that favor for me again. This was a long time before the concept of a verbal mic drop became an overused trope, but it definitely qualified, and I hope she felt good about shaming me and setting me up to fail and then taking advantage of the opportunity. I walked back to my desk and sat down with my face red-hot with righteous anger and shame. It felt so unfair, but I was also kicking myself for being so dumb as to assume that she would be okay with me spending her money, chalk up another incident of being misunderstood due to my own misunderstanding. Anyway, when my supervisor mentioned that perhaps I should spend more time working at work and less time goofing around, I had a very similar feeling. I was happy to leave that job to go back for another semester of university. Chapter 54. We had another baby. Amanda, we call her Manda, had settled down from her challenging early months and revealed that she was incredibly smart. I know lots of parents see that in their kids, but she was legitimately intelligent. Think of it this way. The typical 18-month-old kid has a vocabulary of around 60 words. Manda had a vocabulary of 250 words. We counted them. She was able to speak in sentences and tell us what she wanted some of the time, which is always a bonus with a whining toddler. When she was almost a year old, halfway through my semester, Tina got pregnant again. While it wasn't planned, it also wasn't prevented. Mormons have lots of kids. It's kind of a thing that we're known for. So even though we were poor, Tina's maternity leave had just ended, and I was in school, and we were living on borrowed time in the townhouse, it was a very happy thing. I always feel bad for people who get pregnant when they don't want to be, because something that could be such fantastic news is colored with disappointment, if not total devastation. Because of this development, I decided after the semester to go back to the RCMP since the job paid well, I knew what to do there, and surprisingly, they wanted me back. I guess I probably fell into the he's already got the security clearance category of qualifications. In any event, I was back in familiar territory, although my coworkers were all completely different. I don't think Chisen was even there anymore, and they intentionally split up Sean and me because we got along too well. Isn't that what they do to the overly social kid in elementary school? Too bad for them, and me, that I'm like that meme that was going around Facebook that says something like, Hey teacher, I talk to whoever I'm sitting next to, so moving my desk won't make a difference. Except I was a 25-year-old man, not an 8-year-old kid smelling of kippers with a pocket full of illicit change. I made fast friends with the employees and even some of the RCMP members that I worked with, and I had learned my lesson from my earlier misadventures and tried to hide my rule-breaking more effectively, because, of course, that's what punishments teach people like me. They teach us to be sneakier. As Tina's due date got closer, we had to make a decision about whether we were going to have another C-section, the recommended course of action, or a V-back, vaginal birth after cesarean, the doctor's less preferred option. Our thinking was that if we could avoid another major abdominal surgery, that would probably be the best. The doctors preferred the C-section because I guess the risk of internal tearing can be pretty high. However, before we could decide either way, Tina's water broke and we found ourselves heading off to the hospital with some mild contractions and a lot of excited and nervous energy coursing through our veins. We left Manda with her favorite aunt, Lisa. She's Tina's oldest sister and at that time was single and had lots of time to devote to being Manda's aunt, something that would come back to haunt us in the near future. I'm sure that a lot of women would find it funny that I said mild contractions as if there is such a thing. That's like saying I was mildly kicked in the junk, I would imagine. Of course, there are degrees to such a thing, but even the mildest degree is extremely unpleasant. 
Tina's contractions were progressing as normal, and so we headed to the hospital. They checked Tina to see if she was dilating, and she was, so everything was going as normal. But as is usually the case, everything is normal until it isn't. She dilated to about 5 centimeters and then stopped. The contractions kept coming, but she would not dilate any more than that, no matter what they did to help the process along. To top it off, the terrible Abbotsford Hospital, long since demolished to build a newer, better one, only had one anesthetist on duty that night. So after Tina's first epidural wore off, there was no one around to give her another one. The epidural wore off, you might wonder? Yes, because we had already been in the hospital, with Tina in some form of painful distress, for 20 hours at that point. They tried to bring her to Happy Land with some nitrous, but it didn't work at all. In hindsight, I should probably have strapped on the mask to see if there was an issue, but also in hindsight, it's probably good that I didn't, just in case there was no issue. In any event, the time wore on and the medicine wore off. Did I mention that during a VBAC, if a woman is not dilated past 5 centimeters after 4 hours, they're supposed to proceed with a C-section? No? Well, no one mentioned that to us either. And here we were, entering hour 22 with no progress. Granted, the repeated checks of the baby's vitals did not indicate that there was any fetal distress, but still, I imagine those rules exist for a reason. To make a very long night into a much shorter story, it was finally decided to proceed with the C-section, and after 27 hours of terrible pain, we headed to the operating room together. During this entire ordeal, our doctor showed up to the hospital to check on Tina exactly one time, and his visit lasted less than five minutes. This was strike two. Anyway, on November 5th, Tina gave birth to another baby girl whom he named Rebecca. She looked a lot like Manda and was almost the same size. She managed to escape the slicing of the wayward scalpel, unlike her older sister, but she had put in 27 hours of stress along with Tina and really just needed to rest. Unfortunately, in this old dump of a hospital, that was not to be, because they were renovating at the time, and were literally using a jackhammer in the hallway outside the hospital room where Tina and Becca, which I've called her from the beginning, were left to rot, or rest. So every time this little bundle of newness was finally able to calm her nervous system down, a jackhammer would explode 15 feet away from her bassinet, causing her startle reflex to be on display repeatedly. As terrible as the birth process and the recovery was, what became equally difficult was the hard time that Manda had warming up to her little sister. She showed no interest in seeing her, holding her, or talking to her, and had little regard for Tina either. Now that I think of it, the long night of the delivery was the first time she had ever spent a night away from us, and she was never a good sleeper to begin with, so it was probably kind of rough for her too. Then at the end of the tunnel, instead of a light, there was her mom in a hospital bed, on pain medication, holding a baby and loving her. This was not a good couple of days for Amanda, and it took her a long time to not want to leave Becca at the bus station. She didn't actually suggest that, but she did have the vocabulary to do it if she'd thought of it. Making matters even harder for Manda was the fact that Becca was colicky for three months. To this day, there are few sounds in the world that have the capacity to make my blood steam, like past boiling, like a crying or fussy baby that cannot be soothed. Of course, it forms a vicious cycle in which the baby's crying stresses out the parent, whose stress is sensed by the baby, causing it to cry. Poor Becca and I went around this cycle so many times it could be named in our honor. I was not at my dad or husband best during this phase of my life. When Tina was able to sneak out for any length of time, she would almost invariably come home to me standing on the doorstep with a screaming baby in one arm and a scowl on my face, pronouncing edicts like, You are never leaving me with her again! When I think back on this, it is with a mix of compassion and anger. 
If I saw another dad acting like this, I would smack him in the head and tell him to grow up. But then I also realized I was 25 years old, stressed with school, and a screaming baby, and a toddler, and I had no coping skills whatsoever. It's a miracle that we all survived those three months, but I also know that we didn't come away without scars. Becca struggled with anxiety off and on for years and has always been overly mindful of the emotional state of Tina and me. Manda is a perfectionist who has a hard time seeing herself in a positive light, although she's made great strides in this area. It's kind of too bad that we have kids before we're ready, but I guess no one is really ready, no matter how many times they've read the book about what to expect. Becca was also prone to ear infections, suffering through 24 in her first year of life. It was rare to see her without an infection in one or both ears, and she cried a lot. However, at the three-month mark, pretty much to the day, the colicky crying seemed to vanish, and she just became a normal crying, ear-infected baby. Poor kid. This was also the time we finished with our terrible doctor. The final straw was when we asked him whether Becca was colicky, and he said no, that colic tended to not start until the three-month mark, which is the exact opposite of the truth. After that, we let him go and switched to a different doctor. We also gave up on the Abbotsford Hospital and decided to have our kids in Langley from then on. Chapter 55 And Back to School Leading up to Becca's birth, I had gone back to work with the RCMP, and although Chisen and Sean were gone, it was just as interesting and fun as it was the first time around. I understood the boundaries and expectations better than before, and I did a much better job for them this time around. I was taking another semester off to work, though, and if I'd kept this pace up, it would have taken me ten years to graduate, which reminds me of the line from Tommy Boy when Tommy says to Richard, lots of people go to college for ten years, and Richard answers, yeah, they're called doctors. And then Tommy says, shut up, Richard. That's a funny movie. Anyway, I don't remember the reasoning as to why I decided to take another semester off, but during the fall, as Tina got closer to having the baby and I was getting really tired of the commute to Vancouver, I decided to switch schools to the University of the Fraser Valley out in Abbotsford. At the time, it was a university college like Kwantlen, which is probably the equivalent of a junior college in the United States. It also meant smaller class sizes, cheaper tuition, and more accessible instructors. These were all critical things for me, even though I didn't really realize it at the time. Because the RCMP is a federal government institution, the employee benefits packages are ridiculously good, even for civilian employees like myself. I took full advantage of this when Becca was born and took some time off for parental leave. This turned out to be no holiday, as I mentioned before, but it also led to a classic TED moment. As my return to work date in December creeped closer, and things were not getting any easier at home with two small babies and a stressed-out wife recovering from her second C-section, the thought of leaving them behind became increasingly unbearable. Of course, I didn't let my boss know what was going on, and so they continued to believe that I would be returning to work on a particular date. Imagine their surprise when on that date, instead of arriving at work, I called to tell them that I would not be coming back at all, and I would be returning to university in January. They were not happy with me. But at that point, I didn't care, because my family needed me more than the RCMP. The part that is classic TED is that this decision was discussed with Tina and ruminated about with myself for weeks. But I didn't actually make the decision until 6 o'clock in the morning on the day I was supposed to go back to work. It was another example of calculated impulsivity, the appearance of a last-minute, split-second decision that was obsessed about for a long time beforehand. Deciding to go to school at the last second also meant that when it came to registering for courses as a new student, the choices were very limited. This is how I ended up taking macroeconomics as a course, 
when in any other circumstances I would rather have eaten a live snake. Maybe not. I hadn't touched anything math-related since grade 11 when I mercifully escaped with my 50% passing grade and rejoiced at the prospect of never having to do math again. And here I was, having to calculate all sorts of things that I didn't understand or care about. This was the first real test of my academic ability, and I wore that professor out, meeting him in his office on a regular basis and asking question after question. It's a good thing that I had no friends at school, because I needed my entire mental capacity to wrestle with that class. I was also taking Spanish and a psych class, both of which came pretty naturally to me, so the economics class was definitely the chief occupier of my mental energy. In the end, I managed an A-minus in the class, which was another revelation, a broken glass ceiling for me, as I gained confidence that I could actually do hard things and learn. Of course, my already well-ingrained belief that I was stupid didn't let that feeling hang around for long, and quickly reframed my grade as one based on the professor's pity and being a student at a small school that wasn't even a, quote, real university. At UFV, which was then called UCFV, but to this day I want people to take my degree seriously, so I call it UFV, I took a variety of courses including kinesiology, philosophy, psychology, and language courses. I ended up registering for Japanese for some reason. I guess I reasoned that they were arts credits that would count toward my degree, and I loved learning languages, and they came naturally to me, but in hindsight, those credits might have been put to better use in other areas more relevant to my future profession. However, it could also be argued that the confidence I gained by excelling in language courses paid dividends in my core courses by demonstrating that I did have some natural capacity to learn. My Japanese course was particularly fun because it taught me a completely different grammatical system from that of any other language I had studied. The similarities between Spanish and French almost made me feel like I was cheating in my Spanish class, but Japanese was a totally different animal. It also gave me a glimpse into what my brain was good at, making connections. I remember lying in bed one night, going over some Japanese vocabulary and grammar in my head because of course that sounds like a normal thing to do when a person is trying to go to sleep. In my brain, it was like a curtain was drawn back and I could finally understand this grammatical principle that we'd been trying to cover in class. From there, I created a logic equation that presented a corollary of the original principle. In other words, if this is how you say this, then this must be how you say that. I remember feeling excited at the prospect that I was basically watching my brain do this on its own. When I went to school the next day, I pulled aside a Japanese exchange student who was in my Spanish class, we'd made a deal that I would help her with Spanish and she would help me with Japanese, and asked her if what I had figured out was correct. She looked at me with a stunned look on her face and confirmed that it was. She asked how I knew that and I told her, which stunned her even further. I remember that conversation to this day because it was the embodiment in many ways of what I had always wanted. I wanted to be exceptional so that I could be noticeable. Her shock at my learning pace validated this innermost desire and gave a great boost to my confidence. This was the odd thing all along my university journey. I would achieve amazing results, which would on some level confirm and build a belief in my intelligence and competence, but then I would commit some blunder that would remind me of my roots as an idiot. For example, in my second semester of Japanese, I was cruising along at an A+, acing almost every single assignment, quiz, and test that was thrown my way. On the day of our final exam, we also had to hand in a final project, which I had worked hard on and knew would garner a top mark. I wrote the exam, knowing I had aced it, and confidently strode, borderline strutted, out of the classroom and went home to await the GPA glory that was soon to follow. 
Imagine my surprise when I checked my mark a week later to see that I had only got an A in the class. Does this sound familiar? I couldn't understand what had happened, so I went into my bag to get the professor's email address from my course syllabus, and what do you think I found? No, it wasn't the exam. It was the assignment. It was sitting there in pristine condition because I hadn't handed it in and hadn't opened my bag since that fateful day when I was supposed to. I mean, the parallel here is astounding. This was a virtual replica of my earlier experience in geography, and I felt even more moronic for having repeated my performance. As George W. Bush so eloquently said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. You can't fool me twice. Chapter 56. Success Despite Being Myself. In a nutshell, that event encapsulated my time in university. I generally did exceptionally well, scoring at or near the top of the class in almost all of my classes. I had come a long way from the distracted kid who forgot his homework, but my successes didn't cancel out the ghosts of those earlier days, especially when they showed up alive and well every once in a while. My usual process, especially early in my education, was to underachieve early in the semester and then create a spreadsheet on the computer, thanks to my computer science class at Kwantlen, that told me exactly where I stood and what I would need to do to escape the class with no less than an A. That sounds familiar too, now that I think of it. It's basically what I used to do before all my final exams in high school. The difference was that in university, I was a bit more proactive about it, waiting only until the first month had gone by. One semester, I remember drawing upon an increasing reservoir of evidence that I could succeed at school. I looked at my spreadsheet, at the stark reality of what would be required for me to recover from my usual disorganization and procrastination, and formed my motto, which I wrote on my workbook. Plan, work, and ace everything. I had learned that if I did the first two, the third was within reach, and then I went out and proved it to be true. Throughout all of my university career, I only got two B pluses. Everything else was an A- minus to A+. Plus. I feel uncomfortable saying that out loud, my old roots coming back to haunt me. I can hear my dad's voice saying that I should be more humble. I can hear the nameless voice saying that it was a small school and that it would have been different at a big school. I can hear that voice saying that the GPA was calculated on a different scale that doesn't translate and so it makes it seem higher than it really was. But I have to fight through those voices and recognize that I have the capacity to be intelligent and to let my intelligence show. You can't fluke out for an entire degree. I don't feel like having this argument with myself right now. Let's talk about something else. How about sports psychology? I was told by a professor near the beginning of my education that if I wanted to get into graduate school in the area of sports psychology, I should make sure that all of my undergraduate work was in some way related to that subject area. I would also need to show my research ability and network with professors at the schools where I wanted to go. Thus began four years of hyper-focus. I ate, slept, and drank sports psychology. Ugh, I hate that expression. Ate, slept, and drank? That's so cliche and sounds like something that someone would have said in the 60s, but not in a cool way, like someone saying that something is dynamite, groovy, or neato. Did they say neato in the 60s? I'm Googling it. Yep, they did. They also said righteous, choice, and nifty. Don't those seem like they would have been said by very different groups of people in the 60s? Like, I can't imagine being a person who said that a new song by the Beatles was groovy and righteous, also being a person who said that the good, the bad, and the ugly was neato. I guess it's hard to come up with a list that covers all of the different subcultures without dividing it into subcultures, kind of like how I can't fold laundry with Tina because I want to divide it into Manda's socks, Manda's shirts, Manda's pants, etc., whereas Tina just puts it into a pile called Manda. My way is more detailed, hers is more efficient. Anyway, 
Sports psychology was super groovy. I loved it. I was specifically interested in clinical sports psychology, which is like normal clinical psychology, but working with athletes and coaches. But I was also interested in how the brain worked, how it perceived its environment, how it could be tricked and manipulated, how visualization was used to help athletes train without lifting a finger, and eventually I settled onto the subject of coach-athlete relationships. I was very interested in the impact a coach could have on a player outside of performance and read everything I could find on the subject. I was also interested in conditional goal setting, the psychology of achievement, and everything else I could get my hands on. It was so great to be able to study and learn about things I was actually interested in that concerned real parts of my life, and the prospect of working in that field was beyond exciting. Along the way, I began to develop a reputation as a student. Professors knew I was serious and capable and gave me leeway to go outside the box on assignments and get creative with my topics and approaches. Soon they were letting me know about research assistant positions that became available and asking me to help grade the exams and papers of first and second year students. I mean, think about that. At times I had to shake my head because I still felt like the same kid who was falling asleep in biology class. I remember one research assistant interview that I had with a professor whom I had never had as an instructor. I happened to mention in conversation that I tended to contribute a lot to class discussions, otherwise known as talking a lot. She nodded her head and said, so I've heard. I was surprised and asked what she meant. She said that I was known in the department as someone who was very interested in discussing things. I didn't necessarily read this as a compliment, especially coming from her, since she kind of had a reputation for not being very nice or patient. It was another one of the seemingly endless moments of me realizing that I was being perceived differently than I thought I was. On the surface, you would think someone as self-conscious about this kind of thing as I was would be more careful, but then you wouldn't really understand how the ADHD brain works. We're full of these kinds of paradoxes and inconsistencies. I guess if you think about it, self-conscious is not the most accurate term to describe someone who is afraid of how they are perceived by others. Because to be conscious of the self is to be aware of the self, and most people who worry about this do not have a very accurate awareness of themselves, so how could they be called self-conscious? There has to be a better term for it. As I run through the options in my brain, I settle on self-doubt, because that seems to be the most accurate. Interestingly, the mental act of running through the options in my brain is visualized automatically by the words being placed on a giant spinning wheel like on The Price is Right, and the wheel slows down as it gets closer to the right word, and then there's some sort of game show sound, and I decide on self-doubt. One of my favorite professors was Wayne Pedruzic, who seemed bent on living up to the absent-minded professor stereotype. He was all high-energy, non-conformity, and personal opinion, but he was also a staunch scientist and lover of high-quality, valid research. He was interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake and not so interested in real-world applications. In some ways, this allowed him to be a bit less biased than a researcher who was looking for results that would support his or her life's work. I can see how Wayne could be intimidating to younger students, but with me, he seemed to engage the thirst for knowledge that I always carried, and he could string together a series of research studies into a format that resembled an adventure novel. At least, that's how I experienced them. Another notable instructor I had along the way was Roger Friesen, Roger was a sports psychologist, even though he did not have a PhD. He was from a less regulated time in psychology, when accreditation was less stringent, and I don't mean that in any kind of disparaging way. Roger was extremely accomplished as a sports psychologist and human being, and had a very gentle, curious, open-minded way about him that immediately drew me in. He was also a great storyteller, which I'm realizing now is a characteristic that I value in people, especially my friends. As I'm writing this book, 
Tina will often comment on how surprised she is with how many stories I remember. And my explanation is that I have always been a talker and a storyteller. When I had an experience, I would tell someone, and I would tell everyone, and the repetition of those stories encoded them into my memories. I'm not sure what it is about storytelling, but I find that it connects with me and with other people in a way that a simple imparting of facts cannot. Thus, professors who simply read off the screen or recited endless lists of data had difficulty engaging me. Despite all of my success in school, don't think that I had necessarily changed my ways completely. It was my standard practice not to read the chapters in the textbook, but to read the research papers that I was interested in, usually working towards some final literature review that I found fascinating. Unfortunately, that fascinating research was not what was covered on the exams, so I had to find time to memorize terms and concepts so that I could regurgitate them for marks. This usually meant that I would head off to school on the day of the exam with anywhere from three to six chapters to read and review and memorize and understand and around six hours to accomplish it. On paper, it was enough time. But what it didn't account for was my ADHD approach. I would park next to the athletic building because that was where I spent most of my time. More on that later. Walking past the front lobby, I might get into a conversation with one of the basketball coaches or players or the front desk staff or the athletic director, and then I would find myself walking through the doors of the gymnasium where people were playing pickup basketball or just shooting around. I would watch for a bit, but because people knew I liked to play, I would end up being invited to join in a game, which I would reluctantly do because I knew that I had so much studying to do. One game would often turn into an hour or two of basketball, and then some more conversations afterward with whatever athletes or staff happened to be in the area. Then I would think, I have to get studying because I just use half my time playing sports. Of course, I would also reasonably conclude that you can't effectively study on an empty stomach, so I would improve the efficiency of my studying by heading to the cafeteria to get some pizza or other brain food. I would find a table by myself, intending to study while eating, but I'd invariably get caught up in people watching, or someone would join me who knew me from a class, and conversation would once again sweep away my best intentions like a wave in a sandcastle. After I finished eating and zoning out or talking, I would make my way to the classroom where the exam would be held with around two hours to go before the deadline. I had learned in one of my classes that environmental cues are helpful in associative learning and memorization, so I figured that if I learned and memorized in the room where the exam would be held, it might help me to remember the information during the exam. Of course, by then, I didn't have time to read all of the chapters, so I would just read the chapter summaries, lists of terms and key concepts, and review my notes from class. I would identify the stuff that I would have a hard time regurgitating and come up with an acronym or some other mnemonic device to help, and as soon as I got the test booklet handed to me, I would write the memory prompt on the top of the first page so that I didn't have to remember it anymore. I would also often write relax or slow down on the top of each page to remind myself that it was not a race, because that's how I often approached it. I didn't see exams as tests of my knowledge. I saw them as tests of my prowess. I didn't just want to defeat my competitors, meaning my fellow classmates, I wanted to destroy them. It wasn't enough for me to get the best mark, I also had to get it faster than anyone else. Fortunately, that was usually what happened, but the relative ease with which I was finding success only underscored my brain's explanation of that success, arguing that in order for it to be this easy, there had to be some flaw in the system, there had to be some explanation other than my own ability.